You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Catherine Komen, an A. Barton Hepburn Professor of Economics at Wellesley College and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. Holding a PhD in economics from Princeton University, his latest book is titled A Problem of Fit, How the Complexity of College Pricing Hurts Students and Universities. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Philip Levine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here. I'm looking forward to this. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Sure. So uh, my name is Phil Levine. I've been a professor of economics uh, at Wellesley College for, uh, I just completed my 31st year. Uh, I spent my entire career working on issues of social policy, um, ways that, you know, government and society can help improve the lives of of, uh, disadvantaged individuals. Financial aid is a topic that I really have never worked on up until uh, a decade or so ago, and it wasn't so much my research interests that got me interested in the topic. It was the fact that I had kids of college approaching college age, and I was trying to figure out uh, how much college was going to cost me and them. And that's where I started realizing that there were significant issues here that I needed to be able to address uh, using the tools that I have at my disposal. Okay, so your latest book is titled A Problem of Fit, How the Complexity of College Pricing Hurts Students and Universities. So I wanted to start off by talking about the sticker price versus net price disparities. So for a lot of students who aren't familiar with the specifics of financial aid, the the financial aid system, um, they'll inevitably assume that the price on the website is what they have to pay, which can be anything from $30,000 at public universities to well over $80,000 at some private colleges. But as you point out, the vast majority of students don't actually pay the sticker price. So can you tell us a bit more about the financial aid system for people who aren't familiar and how net prices are actually determined at different types of institutions? Sure. You know, I think one of the biggest aspects of misunderstandings that people have about college pricing is this issue of the sticker price. For the most part, that's what people know. Uh, and to be quite honest, it's not really their fault that that's the only number that they that they know. Oftentimes, oftentimes that's the only number that's reported. Uh, if you read the newspaper, the the uh, or watch CNN or wherever you get your news from, uh, you will be bombarded with information about the sky high cost of a college education, and numbers like eighty thousand dollars float out quite easily in those reports. Uh, the thing is, is that almost nobody pays those prices. So roughly 80, over 85% of students receive some form of financial aid, uh, which reduces their price below that sticker price. So, you know, another way to think about it, it's only 15% of the people or so are actually paying those very sky high numbers. Everybody else is getting some form of financial aid. Uh, The question then becomes how much financial aid are you getting? And financial aid can come in various forms. Uh, there's loans, there's uh, uh, student employment, work-study funding. But a lot of financial aid is just outright grants. Like the college just cut, takes the $80,000 and reduces it by thirty dollars or forty dollars or fifty dollars or $70,000. Uh, 
And that's what brings us to this number, what is referred to as the net price, which is, you know, technical jargon in some sense that most people don't really know what, you know, they don't usually refer to the number of a net price, but that's really what you're paying. Uh, That is what needs to be communicated. That's what people need to know. And that's what people need to be making their decisions based on. Okay, so with net price calculators now mandatory, one would assume that with a little bit of research and support and support from school counselors and teachers, as as well as word of mouth, that everyone would know about this sticker price and net price disparity. So who are the people that this complexity in college pricing hurts the most? You know, the thing is, is that you're what you say, you're correct that uh, a law that was passed in 2008 and went into effect in 2011 required all institutions to institute these things called net price calculators. And net price calculators are mandated by the federal government to reside on every school's webpage that will allow students to enter a bunch of financial information about themselves, uh, the student and their family, uh, and get a better estimate of what they actually would have to pay. Um, They have not really worked particularly well, um, partly because they're still not really all that easy to use. Uh, it, you know, it can require, like, for as a simple example, it would re- require you to take out tax forms. And, and, you know, people don't really understand their taxes. Mostly they don't do it themselves. They be TurboTax or they hire someone or whatever. Uh, and so this t- tool, which in theory should help solve this problem of getting people, helping people understand what college is really going to cost them, really doesn't work very well. And mostly people don't use them and only know the sticker price. So, you know, surveys of, of families indicate that they tend to overstate college costs by, you know, up to double what it actually costs. Um, uh, about half of all high school students only know sticker prices of colleges. Uh, the survey evidence indicates that the extent of misinformation about pricing is massive. Uh, and that matters because it affects decisions that people make along the way, which, you know, at the end of the process may may address which schools they go to or don't go to, but earlier on the in the process about, you know, whether they're even interested in going to college at all, the courses they take and the path that they choose to pursue. Uh, it's hard to imagine a system of acquiring a college education that can function well if people have no idea what it costs. So what course of action would you suggest to remedy this information gap? You know, at at the end of the day, what we really need is a much simpler way for people to figure out and understand what college is going to cost them. Uh, We need need online tools that are simple, that ask people questions that they can answer easily. Uh, You can't ask somebody, for instance, it's a simple question like you know, in terms of tax information, you can't ask someone what's your adjusted gross income. They, they don't know what adjusted gross income is. I'm an economist and basically I couldn't tell you my adjusted gross income. Um, ask people questions in English that they can answer easily. And for the many things, the many you know obscure forms of assets that most people don't have, maybe you don't necessarily need to ask about those. Uh, you know, at a, at a 
early stage in the process trying to communicate much more easily. Uh, you know, I think basically what we need are methods of communicating actual pricing, which exists pretty much in every other market of any other product that you buy that people can understand and figure out. Uh, you know, you, airlines charge different people different prices. We seem to be able to manage that. Automobiles, uh, you know, everybody basically pays a different price because they negotiate, but you have a general sense of what they're going to cost. Uh, you know, there needs to be those sorts of tools which enable you to overcome the complications uh, in a way that makes you not paralyzed, that makes you able to go to the next step and make a well-informed decision. Like I said, cars and and uh, airlines are perfect examples where that seems to work. Why can't we do that with college? Okay, um, so you also talked about sort of this information funnel. Can you tell us a bit more about that idea? Yeah, so this is the, an issue that uh, I talk about in my book. It's, you know, I label it an information funnel uh, that works a lot like the, you know, the application funnel that, that people in the admissions office typically use. I mean, at the beginning of the, of the admissions process, you want as many people in the funnel as you possibly can. Um, and then you sort of narrow through the admissions process until at the very end, you decide, well, you know, these are the kids who are going to, um, going to be admitted and who end up enrolling. Um, uh, I talk about in my book, this concept of a financial aid information funnel that sort of works in the following way, uh, at a very early stage in the process, you know, does it, does it really matter if you're going to pay $15,000 or $18,000, at a very early stage in the process, if what I'm telling you is that, well, it could be 15, it could be 18, but not 80. Right? Um, and to give people just enough information, a ballpark estimate that indicates to them, the sticker price is a number that means that's irrelevant to you. It's going to be for you a lot less than that. The exact amount less at an early stage maybe doesn't matter quite so much. You know, as you're moving through the process and you're narrowing down, like, do I want to go to this school or do I want to go to that school? And how am I actually going to pay, uh, you know, pay the school the, the fees that they charge? You know, as you move along further in the process, you need more precision. And then eventually, obviously, you're going to get a bill and you need to pay it. And that's the tip of the, that's the end of the funnel. Uh, so, you know, establishing a system that en- enables people to get a ballpark estimate at an early stage of the process that also enables them to continue through the process, getting more and more precision, which would also require more and more financial information. Um, but at a point at which it feels like it's relevant and meaningful to you to do so, um, you know, I, I feel like that there's some merit to that, to that approach. So next, I wanted to talk a little bit about the economics behind the situation. So as far as I know, the financial aid system in the U.S. is unique in the way um, the expected family contribution is so dramatically impacted by income and assets. So in similarly developed countries like the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and, and so many more, um, while there might be some small scholarships or bursaries available for the poorest of students, um, people are by and large expected to pay the sticker price and fund their education through student loans. So how did this complex system of need-based financial aid come to develop in the United States that is so different from the rest of the world? So, you know, the part of the issue is that, you know, uh, higher education in the United States, you know, started out 
largely uh, in the form of private institutions. Um, there wasn't really government involvement early on in the process. Um, and so, you know, our history sort of provides this hybrid approach where there's a lot of private institutions. And then along the way, um, you know, 150 or so years ago, uh, you know, government got involved in the formation of what were, you know, called land-grant institutions funded by this thing called the Morrill Act, um, where you got the, you know, Ohio states of the world um, were initially instituted. And, and, you know, when you have an evolution of a system that starts out as private and then brings along public and, you know, you have a little bit of both things going on at the same time, you know, that's different than what's happened in other countries. And so, you know, especially given the roots in the private system, um, you know, private institutions charge tuition um, to attend those institutions. You know, it didn't, as that, you know, at, at that time, only privileged and elite children attended those institutions. Um as the system developed further and it became obvious that to get continued growth, there was going to, we would need more than just those students enrolling in institutions. It became obvious that we need some sort of a financial aid system to help cut the costs for those with, you know, more modest means. Uh, you know, private schools uh, started doing that in the really in the thirties and forties and fifties. Uh, and, in this country. Um, and then, you know, obviously state institutions were, were sort of growing during the, this period as well. And, and the same thing, if you want to be accessible, you have to figure out a system to have different prices for different people um, based on ability to pay. So that's sort of how we got to where we are, which is different than a, you know, sort of a bottom up approach that occurred in the United States, as opposed to a top down approach where sort of the government set up the system in the first place, um, as, as occurred in many other countries. And that's how, how we got to where we are. But it also indicates that, uh, you know, the title of my book has how this, you know, this implication that inst institutions are hurt by the system as well. Uh, and for them, if they need students and if the only message that's getting across to people, to student potential students, is that we're really expensive, that's a problem for them. Uh, if to be able to attract those additional students, they have to be able to communicate, you know, fair and effective pricing. Uh, and that's what, you know, I think that's where we sort of have these log jams right now uh, in terms of, you know, what institutions are technically charging and what students um, would, you know, otherwise be paying and figuring out a way to sort of overcome the information gaps. We can talk about some of the affordability issues too, too because, you know, I'm not saying that it's just an information problem. There's affordability issues there as well, but I'll, I'll stop there for now. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So I, one thing I was curious about, I mean, you're an economist and so I, I'm sure this thing seems a little, a little, um, odd to you from, from that standpoint, because, um, usually like with, with any other goods, um, you have market price and you, you have yeah. supply and demand that dictates that price. And right. so, I, I mean, you would expect that if, you know, 85% of people couldn't afford the price of college, that the rational answer there 
would be to lower the price so that they can attract more customers, right? I mean, right. if the price of a good is too high in the supermarket, you don't see um, the, the supplier or um, you, you don't see, you know, the Walmart saying, okay, this is the price you have to pay based on your income and your assets and, right. and that sort of thing. So what, what, I mean, why, why did college differ from even other goods in that sense? So a college education is a very different product than going to the grocery store and buying eggs. So there's a market for eggs. There's a supply curve and a demand curve. I teach this routinely in Econ 101 when I teach that course. Uh, and that determines the price and everyone pays that price. Uh, college is very different in an important sense. And that colleges have the ability to charge different individuals different prices. So there's some conditions that need to exist in the market for that to be able to happen. Um, that can't happen with eggs in the grocery store. If you try to charge, you know, one customer more than another, they'll, you know, the one who's charging less will just go outside and sell them to the other people at a lower price. Um, you can't really resell a college education. Uh, so a college education is a, is a unique product um, that in which students are able to be charged or institutions are able to charge students different prices uh, and have that system, you know, continue. Uh, so in a for-profit world, we would likely think that that's a bad thing uh, because you can charge people who can afford more, you can charge them more and the people who can charge less you could either charge them less or perhaps not sell it to them at all if you don't make any money off of them. And that would be great for a for-profit firm because I'll make a lot of money. Um, colleges are not for-profit institutions. They're not for-profit institutions. So it's true that for higher income students, we can charge them more. And perhaps that generates a surplus, so to speak. Uh, well, at a not-for-profit institution, it's not like that surplus gets just gets distributed to the, I guess, the board of trustees. That's not that would violate tax laws. Uh, what happens with that money is it gets redistributed, and it can be used to help pay the college costs of those who can't really afford it, and in particular, students who, you know, just to make up numbers, let's say student, the institution's chart, you know, it costs an institution, let's say, twenty-five thousand dollars a year to educate a student. Well, if someone could only afford $5,000 in a for-profit institution, we just wouldn't accept that student. Uh, but in this nonprofit system that I'm describing here, basically, we can charge that student $5,000, and it's, the money has just been redistributed from those who are paying more than that, more than the $25,000. It just gets filtered down. Um, that's the economics of how this pricing system works, and really why the fact that institutions have the ability to charge different students different prices is a good thing in this market, not a bad thing. Okay. Um, so next, you talk about um, how the price might still be too high for low-income students at certain types of institutions, averaging yeah. about $5,000 to as high as $10,000 above what they can afford. Um, yeah. So to address this, you make the case for doubling the Pell Grant. Um, can you tell us more about the solution and how it would address the problem? Yeah. So I, I just want to take a step back for a minute uh, to describe what the problem really is. So everything, most of what we've been talking about so far is about the information problems. Um, uh, but there are affordability issues that 
are pervasive in this market. And those issues largely involve the ability for lower income students to be able to afford to pay for college. In some sense, everything that I just said about how institutions are able to subsidize from the higher end to the lower end to help make it work, that's great to the extent that we're able to do it. But there's a lot of ways in which that the ability to do that is restricted. Uh, so for example, um, you know, where we see this work really well, for instance, is at elite institutions. Uh, elite institutions can charge $80,000 and the highest income students will pay that amount. They would pay more if you let them. Um, and that filtering down that I described earlier works well in, in those institutions and lower income students essentially pay what they can afford at those institutions. If you very low income, you literally pay close to nothing at those institutions. Um, but there's only you know, dozens of institutions out of the hundreds or thousands that exist that can do that. Uh, other places have greater difficulties providing those subsidies to lower income individuals that would enable them to truly afford uh, a college degree. So, so why is that? So the first thing that we have is largely for political reasons. Um, we have state institutions that like to keep a low tuition, a low tuition, the $30,000 number, which is, you know, a typical number that you would see at a public institution, four-year institution, you know, for students living on campus. Um, so that certainly would cover the cost of those students, but it probably doesn't generate enough surplus to help pay the lower income students. It's set at that price because the public supports that. The thing is that the, the only people who are actually paying that amount are the high income students. So in some sense, what you just did was you just provided subsidies for high income students who can now easily afford to go to those institutions. It's affordable for them. Um, it didn't generate enough additional revenue to help pay the expenses of the lower income students. Um, that could be addressed by the state by raising taxes and using the revenue to support the institution. And then the institution can give that money to lower income students. That tends not to happen. So lower, so public institutions don't have the resources to charge lower income students an amount that they can afford to pay. Uh, what I show in my book is that, you know, I provide, present numbers that indicate that, you know, they're paying roughly, let's say $5,000 uh, more than a calculation would indicate that they can afford. So if you took a really low income student who basically couldn't afford to pay anything, we still ask them to pay $5,000 in cash on top of whatever loans and work study expectations um, are in their financial aid package. They don't have that money. That's a problem. Um, at private institutions that aren't very highly endowed and that aren't as elite and that don't and that do have to compete directly with public institutions, they have the same problem because for them, they now need to compete with the public institutions. Maybe they can charge a student thirty-five or forty thousand, not thirty thousand, um, to get them to come to their institution, but they can't charge seventy or eighty thousand. People wouldn't pay it. Um, so what do they do? They technically do charge, if you look at their sticker price, it's sixty or $70,000, but then every single student gets a $20,000 merit scholarship, except those are all the high-income students. So that limits the revenue that can be used to subsidize the lower-income students. 
They don't have much of an endowment. They have no state support. They can't afford to lower prices to an affordable level for lower income students either. And that's why we have an affordability problem for lower income students in this country. Doubling the Pell Grant solves that problem. It provides exactly the right amount of money to exactly the people who need the money the most. Uh, currently, the Pell Grant is uh, for this coming academic years, a little bit under $7,000. Um, it is about the exact same magnitude as the affordability gap that those students pay, uh, that those students face. Um, and I would argue that that is a, 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 an excellent solution to the affordability problem that we face. Okay, um, but with federal student loans so readily available, even if a student does end up borrowing $20,000 to $40,000 overall to fill this gap, surely they should be able to pay that back, um, assuming that they picked a major with high enough market demand. Um, so, for example, the average STEM major makes $70,000 a year um, at a school, t- enough to pay that gap back within a year or two. Um, so shouldn't we be focusing on getting students to make good decisions regarding the college and major they choose so they, that they can pay back their loans instead of trying to reduce the upfront costs through taxpayer-funded redistribution schemes? So in some sense, the, the numbers that I'm giving you include loan expectations. So the, the $5,000 affordability gap that I'm talking about includes an assumption that the student will take out the maximum uh, federal direct student loan. Um, which is for a first-year student, $5,500 a year um, in both the subsidized and unsubsidized component. Um, It goes up as you get older. So it's $5,500 for both your first and second year, and then $6,500 and $7,500. You end up with like, you know, if you take out the maximum student loan, you're still going to have, you know, close to $30,000 worth of student debt. And so, you know, your, your point is valid that like, this is likely to be a good investment anyway. And we, and, it's not obvious that we should discourage students from doing that. Um, but that's already in there. So even after we include what I think one might consider to be a reasonable level of student debt, uh, there's still an affordability gap. And somehow that needs to be filled in. And you know, doubling the Pell Grant will do that. Okay, um, why not increase the student loan um, maximum instead of double the Pell Grant? So it turns out it's interesting because uh, I don't remember the exact year, but roughly in, you know about fifteen or so years ago, um, you know the student loan limit did go up by a couple thousand or two thousand dollars. I don't remember the details, um, and student debt did increase, and it actually led to um, an increase in debt, which makes sense. Uh, but it also led to an increase in college attendance and graduation and lifetime earnings. So, you know, what, what, what the exact right number of the maximum student loan should be is not clear. And perhaps maybe we can talk about tweaking it, but I don't think anybody would be supportive of expecting people, um, routinely to be borrowing tens of thousands of dollars, um, e- even if it were necessarily on a spreadsheet, a good investment, it could also be the case that people are reluctant to take on that kind of debt in the first place. And then they will, again, not make great educational decisions. 
So if people are reluctant to take out, say we eliminate this sort of Pell Grant financial aid, that sort of model, um, and just expect people like they do, you know, most other places in the world, um, if you can't afford the cost of college, you will either take out a student loan, you'll take um, some time off, you'll go and work um, and save up and pay for your education. Um, so if, if we do sort of try out um, the, the just as a hypothetical, the model that works everywhere else in the world, um, the the idea would then be that if people are so reluctant to take out the loan, if colleges say, okay, um, even in the absence of financial aid, um, we're not going to budge from our $30,000 or $80,000 sticker price, and that's going to be for everyone. Um, and everyone is, say, reluctant to come in and pay that that price. Um, then colleges, um, at least the ones that want to keep on attracting talent, are going to have no choice um, but to say, okay, we, we need to lower our prices. So um, I mean, I think there is some sort of a, a ethical issue with expecting higher income students to, or, or you know, even taxpayers, most of whom didn't even go to college in the first place, um, to to sort of subsidize um, low income students to to go. Um, so you know, why why not just say, okay, um, you know what, it's as as an adult, you have the responsibility to look at the cost and the benefit and make that decision. If you think that investment for you makes sense, um, it's your responsibility to pick an institution and a major, which you think will have a solid return on investment to justify making this decision. Um, and if not, we're not going to expect, you know, high income students to, to keep on subsidizing you. So, you know, the thing is, is that uh, in other countries that you're referring to, there's also much larger government expenditures on higher education in the first place. And so, you know, uh, we live in a country that I think believes in a progressive system of taxation um, that higher income individuals should pay more and lower income individuals should pay less. Um, and all we're talking about here is essentially the same thing. So it can happen in one of two ways. Either it can be Higher income individuals pay more taxes. Those higher taxes get used to help subsidize the education system, which would make it less expensive for lower income individuals to go to college. Or it can happen through the higher education system itself by charging higher income students more. Both are taxes. Uh, and if you believe in a progressive form of taxation, there's really no, no difference between those two things. All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Levine. No problem. Glad I could be here. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.